Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to this very special 400th episode of the HR Chat Podcast. Hey, this is Bill Bannum. Launched all the way back in the summer of 2016, it's amazing to me to think that we've hit such a milestone, particularly when I think back to the plethora of awesome guest experts that we've featured along the way. I had planned to take today's 400th episode in a very different direction, but although many countries around the world are optimistically coming out the other side of the Omicron wave, hopefully with higher levels of community immunity and a genuine chance this time to return to something similar to pre-pandemic work and life freedoms with renewed appreciation and vigour, we are currently faced with new and scary challenges. The geopolitical situation right now is weighing on us all and threatens scenarios not seen in over 75 years. So I've decided to use the 400th edition of the HR Chat Pod to remind us all of the kindness that we can choose to convey and the good we should always try to see in others. In this episode, I share a montage of insights from past guests on what it means to be a compassionate, loving, understanding and thoughtful colleague or leader. This special episode is supported by WorkZinger, a job search and hiring platform emphasising company culture fit. The WorkZinger team of culture-focused recruitment experts will be regularly sharing their experiences with the HR Gazette audience throughout 2022 and beyond. For example, stay tuned for an HR chat conversation that I have with founder Dan Hunter coming up in just a few episodes' time. Learn more about Dan and their team at workzinger.com. And now let's get into a host of inspiring snippets from past episodes. Recorded near the beginning of the pandemic, I spoke with Dave Ulrich, ranked as number one in management guru by Business Week, profiled by Fast Company as one of the world's top 10 creative people in business, a top five coach in Forbes, and recognized on Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame as one of the world's leading business thinkers. In that conversation, I asked Dave, what are some ways that leaders can deliver hope and purpose when the future is so uncertain for so many? We each respond to the external pressures in a different way. I tend to respond to this pressure by becoming more intense. I run into it. I fight it. I remember I used to do bike rides with teenage, uh, teenagers in our local community, and we do a four or 500-mile bike ride in a, in a week. Whenever there was a hill, I'd attack it. I'd go hard. I'd go fast to get through the hill. That's my style. My wife's style is somewhat different. She's a psychologist, and she ponders. She reflects. She becomes thoughtful. Uh, and I hope I'm not less thoughtful, but we respond differently. And so I think one of the things HR has to do to help employees is recognize that every employee has their personal style and approach. And our job in HR is to be responsive to what that style is and to hold a mirror up and help the employee recognize both the strengths and liabilities of their personal response to this style. There's a lot of things we can do. We can listen. We can, we can focus on the future. We can help people reflect about where they've been. We can help people see what the opportunities are as we go forward. I think hope is not found in the setting. Hope is found in how we respond to the setting. And I hope that HR professionals can provide people hope about their opportunities Alicia Campbell is an accomplished and respected strategic HR leader, and she presented a session at an Innovate Work online summit quite some time back. Her topic was called Building Trust in the Midst of Uncertainty, Anchoring Your Employee Engagement Strategy on the Eight Pillars of Trust. 
in the associated HR chat episode, I asked Alicia if there would be advice that you could give people leaders during tough times, what would that be? Consistency in the actions that you take, be consistent with the actions. Uh, Over-communicate. So if you think you communicated it once, communicate it three times, whether it's in person, over email, or another medium. And compassion. Show compassion and empathy during this time. Other people take situations of uncertainty and and chaos in in different ways. And so it's it's important to show that empathy and be able to connect with your employees um, to show that you care. Here's an extract from HR Chat episode where I spoke with Bill Treasurer, writer, speaker and consultant at Giant Leap Consulting, who helps managers lead in new and courageous ways. In his book, Courage Goes to Work, How to Build Backbones, Boost Performance and Get Results, Bill divides courage into three buckets, try, trust and tell courage. Listen as he offers examples of each. When I wrote Courage Goes to Work, there had been some other books written about courage, some of the most famous books of all time, actually. Uh, Profiles in Courage by John F. Kennedy won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Ambrose. Uh, And then John McCain wrote a New York Times bestselling book called Why Courage Matters. But all of those books tend to look at a certain domain of courage, often military courage or political courage. And, And my insight was that regardless of what domain you're operating, courage itself manifests itself in similar ways. And what I call the three buckets of courage. Try courage is stepping up to the plate to do something facing the unknown that you've never done before. Other people may have done this thing, but for you, it's the first time you're experiencing it. It's a pioneering event. So the first time you drove a car, for example, you try, that's trying something you hadn't done before. Or maybe you drove a motorcycle. Uh, the first time you raised your hand and said, you know, I think I'd like to go on the management track and lead people. That was a try courage moment. Anytime that you have initiative and take action, it's typically a try courage moment, which is contrasted with trust courage. Trust courage is not the courage of action. Sometimes it's the courage of inaction, releasing my need to control and my need to be right. This is the courage of vulnerability and emotional exposure. An example of this in the workplace would be learning how to delegate. I can't tell you how I have to think, Bill, it's the, actually the most common malady that I experience with new leaders is the inability to delegate because they want to try to do everything themselves. And so they hyper-control and micromanage people. But if you don't learn how to get to delegation so that you can leverage yourself by entrusting others, you'll never build strong relationships with them, uh, with them and you'll plateau your career. The third bucket of courage is what I call tell courage. It's the one that we most commonly think of when we ask people for examples of courage in the workplace. They'll be like, well, when that person confronted the boss or when the, confer- when the person said something to a bully. Tell courage is the courage of voice and assertiveness. It's the courage of the truth teller. It's the courage of not biting your tongue to go along and get along, but to stand in your truth and to assert it. Each bucket of courage comes with a risk, which is why we typically avoid it. With try courage, the risk is I could take this action and wipe out and hurt myself. With trust courage, I could entrust you and you could betray me. And with tell courage, I could tell the truth that I'm experiencing 
And you might not like that truth, especially if it is a group that I'm disagreeing with, and you might cast me out of the group. So in each case, you have to assume some risk in order to experience try, trust, or tell courage. When Mumtaz Chowdhury, co-founder and executive director at Pragilis, a boutique change management firm, came on the HR Chat Show, she explained some of the biggest challenges leaders face when it comes to managing change and how to inspire others. The single biggest challenge that we've seen in our most recent work is the ability to keep up with the pace of change, um, our creating change resiliency inside an organization. So according to research from Gartner, um, the average organization has undergone at least five enterprise changes in the past three years. I would say that's probably a little bit more. This uh, research and study is probably a little bit older. But 73% of organizations expect more change initiatives in the next few years, and only a small minority expect the pace of change to decelerate. So what's known and what we're all experiencing inside organizations is that this pace and rate of change is unprecedented and it continues to increase, creating widespread change fatigue in organizations. So when leaders neglect to equip their people and leaders with the skills to not just survive, but thrive in change, it can lead to significant negative consequences as I spoke about before, such as employee burnout and fatigue, but also at an organizational level, the inability to achieve your organizational organizational and or strategic goals. So the single biggest challenge in my view is that change fatigue and the ability to keep up with the pace of change. David Sturt, Executive Vice President at OC Tanner, a $500 million plus global recognition and workplace culture company, came on the show last year to share his take on why traditional ways of managing have finally been put to rest as a result of the COVID crisis and how forward-thinking leaders can co-create thriving workplace cultures through powerful, meaningful micro-experiences. We're, we're seeing some real fundamental changes happening. And I, I've studied leadership now for, for many, many years. And, uh, and forever, people have talked about these issues that are found in many companies, most companies around the world, where people are following leadership habits and practices that have been inherited from previous generations of leaders that goes back decades, centuries. And and the mindsets and behaviors associated with older style traditional leadership, as I like to call it, are are dying out. And, and, And even though for years we've talked about Every cohort, every age cohort prefers a better leader, prefers somebody who involves them in the decision-making process, who helps inspire them, who helps uh, form uh, strong teams and and set in place powerful and effective and thriving cultures. We, We all want that. And yet why on earth do we still find so much evidence of these old, outdated, traditional leadership practices. And I I think so much of it is because it's just become ingrained that, that, that one sort of young, new, developing leader learns from their former leader who learned from their former leader. And, and, and those old practices and behaviors become aspirational looking and and therefore they they end up modeling the behaviors to the next generation 
and and so it it perpetuates and and what we have found is that despite people's wanting those changes in the past there was simply not enough strength and power to overthrow the status quo partly because most of the leaders at the top of every organization grew up modeling the old behaviors and so there's some resistance to it. And I, I think that's part of why it's taken so long for these old practices of, of command and control and for making the decisions and from telling people what to do and de deciding who gets to know what. The, the, these practices have, have remained. And yet here's what's changing. And here's what I spoke about at that conference. I'm seeing an actual sea change going on. It is a fundamental shift. And I think what's driving that shift are some of the powerful forces that are afoot that are that are requiring a, a democratization of leadership. And and I'm, I'm seeing it in, in lots of different ways and play out in different ways. One is younger, younger employees are simply rejecting these old leadership practices. I think people 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, entering the workforce took it as a given that they should just adapt and deal with whatever the company did and and kind of they were at the command of the leader that they had and they had no power to affect that and change that well those coming into the workforce today not only millennials but especially gen z are they've grown up in an environment where they've had a voice and they have they have the ability to influence uh, who who tells them what to do and and how they re react to that, and and so younger employees are rejecting these older these older practices. Another thing is that boomers are retiring at a massive pace. Uh, you know, it's it's ten thousand people a day that are boomers are retiring, and that's been going on now for several years and will continue for the next several years. Well often those are occupying leadership roles. And so as they vacate those leadership roles, that starts to open up different ways of leading. And as younger employees who were raised with a different mindset around leadership and teams, their mindsets are starting to be brought forward. And that's also starting to put pressure on some of these old outdated practices that just simply need to go. Back in late 2020, I spoke with Mary Marzek, Senior Strategy Health Scientist at Virgin Pulse, about how technology can help corporate well-being efforts and why measuring the effectiveness of your company culture is key to achieving investment-driven results like high job performance, resilience and reduced healthcare costs. Within the interview, I asked Mary how organisations can start building a supportive culture of well-being and how that can help to increase employee engagement. It isn't just companies that are striving to maintain their culture in that sense of togetherness with employees being um, remote or in disparate locations, not together in groups at all anymore. Um, but supervisors and management teams are also struggling. So I'll back up to the larger point of the company culture and how does a company, you know, what are some some helpful things that a company can actually to do. Uh, one, I think, town hall meetings. 
um, with the CEOs and senior leadership talking about their vision and plans and having a robust Q&A, giving people that sense of stability in their jobs as much as is you know realistic and relevant depending on the um, the situation for that company and i think that is one extremely helpful way to you know get that sense of company culture and vision and mission and including well-being in that you can have a moment you can have meditation you can have i know one company that leads all of their all company meetings with uh, warm ups. So, in that 15 minutes that people log on before the meeting actually starts, they, they do exercises together. Some other ways that a company can help is by supporting charities and allowing people perhaps to donate their rewards or just participate in things that are in their community. Um, that's supported by their company. Another thing that companies are doing are things like virtual 5Ks, where you'll have a start time and an end time, and everybody does it from wherever they are, but you sort of have that sense of togetherness. I think that's a great idea. Um, teams chat um, is one, sharing ideas through chat, having those channels back and forth. I don't think anything totally replaces the in-person piece, but those are some ideas because we just have to deal with the reality that we have right now. Dr. Lino Karamunchuri, co-founder and head of behavioral sciences at Mesh Diversity, joined the pod a while back. In it, he explained ways that leaders and HR teams can lead in ways that are more inclusive and take a systematic approach to address the need for ongoing anti-oppression. Good DNI, uh, DNI done well, is, is really about setting the organization up for success. So think about um, the core principles and values of, of whatever your organization is. You want to be able to set your organizational vision and, and expectations for what equity and inclusion actually look like so they can remove those barriers that prevent that vision then you want to be able to equip your leaders with the ability to steward that vision. And that at a personnel level, you want to provide your people with the tools and the resources so they can actually reach their personal and team potential. So when you're doing that, what you're doing essentially is driving a culture where everybody's moving forward in the same way. And, and for that to work, we're looking at three main keys, safety, belonging, and inclusion. Now I mentioned the echo chamber on the internet. Um, Belonging is a real thing. Safety is a real thing. Inclusion is a real thing. Uh, these are real human experiences uh, as social creatures. And so understanding safety for anyone who's ever had a micromanaging boss, you understand your, your stressors start the day before you go into work. And that's only in relation to that one micromanaging boss. Imagine if what you're dealing with on the outside is, say, racism and you come into work and you're not sure if you're being treated through that lens. Um, the, the, the challenge that HR folks have to understand is it's not the surface numbers you're looking at. That, that's, that's not where you need to start the work. Uh, the challenge of all of these isms is, is in the ambiguity of it. 
The final clip that I'd like to leave you with today comes from one of the most inspiring, authentic and positive guests that I've had the privilege of interviewing over the hundreds of HR Chat episodes that I've hosted. Tia Graham is a keynote speaker, founder of Arrive at Happy and author of the new book, Be a Happy Leader. Throughout its pages, strategies and tactics are provided, which include the use of positive psychology, having a broad perspective, executing quickly, creating strong relationships, measuring what matters and being that spark in the team. And I asked Tia, what are some of the things that leaders can start today to get to a place where more of their behaviours are increasing happiness and or on a daily basis? I'll give three tangible, proven takeaways for the listeners. The first is every single day, remember your meds. Meds are meditation, exercise, healthy diet, and sleep. Everything you do with your body connects to your mind and it is imperative that you take care of your physical body daily to be successful. The second is your intellectual well-being. I want everyone listening to think about what they want to learn and how they want to grow over the next six months and dedicate time every single week to learning and growing and becoming a better version of themselves, both personally and professionally. And the third is I want leaders to, and and people listening to remember, and this is a key that I talk about in my book, and it's really important, is to remember every day that you are mortal. I want you to live with a sense of awe. When you wake up every day and realize that waking up is a gift, you are going to approach your life, your family, and your teams in a much more, um, in a way that is filled with gratitude and presence and passion and purpose. So those are my three tips for today. I hope that you enjoyed this special HR chat episode. Thanks very much for listening and stay tuned over the coming weeks to hear new episodes featuring such industry figures as Dan Hunter, Charlene Thomas, Joe Brito, Dr. Tyrone Smith Jr., Ilya Brodsky, Norm Smallwood, Whitney Johnson, Michael G. Cox, Terry Baker and the amazing Steve Brown. Until then, thanks for listening and please do be kind to each other. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.